The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, I'm Anna Shemansky coming to you from Brooklyn, and this is Exchange. Today, we're going to explore the large, opaque, and often highly illiquid bond market. We'll also discuss leveraged finance, triple B-rated debt, and more as we try to make sense of this brave new credit world. And so I'm thrilled to have as my guest today, Dan Zvern, CEO and CIO of Arena Investors and an all-around credit expert. Dan, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. You know, before we really kind of dive in, I, you know, I, I just want to kind of give our listeners an overview because, you know, a lot of people are obviously very, very familiar with equities, but, you know, debt is a little bit more complicated. So maybe first question here is just if you could kind of explain why the debt market is so different from the equity market. Well, uh, it, it, it's a big question. Uh, certainly, uh, one way to think about it would be that in equities, um, it, largely you have companies and, and, and a lot of times they're from uh, they're they are very recognizable names like Apple and IBM and Facebook and things we all know and the equity is a represents obviously a piece of the ownership in those things uh, and it's kind of a vanilla black and white thing equity is equity is equity you mm-hmm. own something uh, in fixed income uh, there are many many different flavors of um, things that you might have other than ownership, and there are different, uh, mm-hmm. whether that's loans or bonds or uh, things in between, like uh, mezzanine securities or, or preferred securities, et cetera. They have different uh, rights attributable to them. They can be very customized, and they can cover things that are far greater than simply companies, but also assets and houses and uh and virtually everything else you could think of that can be cut into a security uh, and uh, mm-hmm. sold to investors. And so, and furthermore, so per- they, mm-hmm. they can even be securities of securities where you take a bunch of those securities and you dump them in <laughs> and recut them again and again and again. So it, it just, uh, it is a much bigger, more complex world that um, mm-hmm. is filled with both uh, opportunity and, uh, and risk. Yeah. And, and one of those, you know, I think characteristics people often think of with the bond market is liquidity and often the lack of liquidity. And so I think that may actually be an interesting place to start in terms of thinking, you know, moving back a little bit, you know, before this crisis to the last crisis and kind of thinking about what changed in the bond market after the 2008, 2009 crisis. Well, I think, um, uh, you know, both, today's environment as well as in 08 were just examples of crises that happen uh every you know five ten fifteen years uh you know throughout our history uh and before mm-hmm. uh our being the u.s and um they're always started uh by something we all didn't think was happening because if we all thought it was happening then it wouldn't surprise <laughs> us and you right. wouldn't see the surprise the uh the freakouts that you see and uh and a lot of times the notion of liquidity plays a big part because um, it allows it, it frequently can uh, or a lack of it uh, can can create um, or exacerbate panics and problems mm-hmm. uh, because people own things and they suddenly need to cash up in some way and they can't get access and so suddenly it doesn't matter about the intrinsic worth 
uh, suddenly uh, it, it's what you can get for it, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, to take it down to a simple level, if I have a house and even in New York City uh, or you know perhaps other places that are now more of appeal, right. uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm looking to sell my house and I have time to do it, I'm going to hire you know multiple agents or one agent and I'm going to market it uh, across multiple channels. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to wait for just the right bid and maybe I'll take it. Maybe I won't. Uh, but if you tell me uh, with a proverbial gun to my head that I need to sell it by next week, well, suddenly it's, it's value uh, or it's perceived value can change quite a bit. And instead of, you know, looking at comparables or other uh, data points that would, uh, would uh, allow us to assume a, a price that we could get paid, it's more just like, who has the money right then and, and what are they willing to pay independent of uh, quote, uh, quote unquote intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. And so similarly in securities markets, when there are uh, panics, um, uh, whether they are caused by macroeconomic or other causes, um, that lack of liquidity uh, can, can create distortions in the marketplace. And, uh, and so taking that back to 08, what happened was that um, there was an overwhelming amount of, um, of, of, of securities that needed to find a home because mm -hmm. of owners of those securities themselves effectively were levered themselves, right? And so they right. borrowed to buy more securities. Uh, and so when the lenders uh, said, well, we need our money right now, suddenly the intrinsic value of those assets didn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And they needed to just kind of get a price for them. And, and what had happened coming into 08 was that because of the, su the suppression of, of, of interest rates by monetary authorities mm -hmm. um, that had started certainly at least a decade before, um, the amount of issuance of securities that had a yield to them uh, was kind of greater than it had ever been. And by the way, it's only increased tremendously. Right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and suddenly there were, that, there were way more sellers than buyers because of that. Um, because of the issues that happened in that case, starting with the residential mortgage market mm -hmm. and the kind of exacerbation of the, of the crisis um, uh, occurred. Since that time, unfortunately, uh, what has happened is, is a story of, of what frequently happens with government, uh, which is, you know, they, instead of fixing a problem, they brought uh, basically uh, un, unintended further problems. Mm -hmm. um, and so instead of eliminating regulators and replacing them, they just added more of them and more regulation uh, without if getting rid of If one is good, 10 must be better. Exactly, exactly. All governments love to obviously just be bigger uh, and, and never really voluntarily downsize for any reason. And so uh, what they said is here's a few more agencies to look at these things and a lot more people, but not necessarily a lot better people. Um, and the continued uh, leaning on this kind of suppression of, of rates you know, happened with monetary authorities. Mm -hmm. The explosion in assets continued. And while the fundamental issues weren't dealt with, things like um, having, uh, forcing people who raise money to invest in fixed income to raise it in forms that are asset liability matched. Mm -hmm. Things like Say, recognizing that many of these things don't trade uh, in a very orderly fashion. So if people are going to facilitate markets in them, they need to be able to quote unquote lean one way or another, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of owning more or less of them right. without being um, kind of reviled as quote unquote proprietary traders. Yep. Um, 
uh, the there needs to be incentives for agencies to care about the uh, how correct their ratings are versus you know what their mm -hmm. commission to make a rating is. Uh, and so many of these issues that were there before weren't solved and in fact were frequently exacerbated and combined with this explosion in, in, in further explosion and issuance of all of these different debt securities um, set up a really tough situation that uh, or bubble that could be pricked by in this case uh, a, a, a pandemic. Uh, and so here we are. Yeah. And so I guess now, you know, as you said, kind of fast forwarding to, you know, what we saw this past March, obviously liquidity again became initially this, this massive issue. And, yeah. you know, it kind of dried up faster than I think almost anyone had ever seen. And, you know, maybe you could just speak a little bit about what happened and then also maybe what surprised you about what happened. Well, uh, what you saw in the beginning of March uh, was a replay and a far worse one uh, of, the, of the situation that had occurred starting um, a few years before. Um, actually, I put it, um, I, you know, when uh, Draghi actually um, for a second threatened to kind of start to raise rates. And what happened, and that was, I forget right now, three or four years ago, but basically uh, what happened was the offer stayed the same, the bid fell away to nothing, and, and, and there was no volume, right? And, and you yeah. saw several kind of tremors where that occurred leading mm -hmm. up to what happened in March. And then in March, you basically saw um, no bid across the board for huge, huge volumes of securities, not only debt securities, but also equities, in fact. Right. And so that seemed to be uh, really the, um, a, a, you know, a very – it's really intellectually interesting situation where um, you could um, find situations where um, that were relatively short duration so that mm -hmm. you would, they would self liquefy, yep. but you, that you could purchase them at a level that effectively paid you for being a provider of liquidity of last resort. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And certainly we thought that there was going to be a whole lot more of that uh, to occur. And I think what we saw was uh, this rush to, uh, quote unquote, whatever it takes, uh, which is a really uh, dangerous thing to use uh, or mm. abuse. And I, I think it, a couple of points to make on that. One is that um, had we not had this artificial suppression of rates uh, in order to kind of juice the stock market, basically, uh, mm. past kind of 2011, 2012, we might have had a lot more tools in the toolkit with which to deal with this issue and a mm -hmm. far less enormous, a far less uh, enormous bubble effectively to worry about um, such that while we may have ended up at a whatever it takes moment, it might not have, have been so immediate. And unfortunately, uh, in the longer term, what, it, what whatever it takes means is uh, compounded with the issues that were uh, present coming into the pandemic is that uh, we have this real issue of moral hazard where mm -hmm. each of these times that government intervenes and puts its thumb on the scale and says, we realize you took too much risk, but we're not gonna make you pay for it, means that the next amount of risk taking will be that much greater. And uh, I think furthermore, you've seen additional um, uh, um, distortions in the market from things like the uh, focus on passive investing, various the, mm -hmm. the size and scale uh, and scope of certain quantitative investors, as well as this new uh, kind of phenomenon of the 
commission-free Robinhood style yeah. <laughs> uh, retail crap. Mm -hmm. And so what it means is basically that uh, stock prices um, have detached from any kind of intrinsic reality. Uh, and while that could be fine, it then starts to bleed into more institutional markets like fixed income, mm -hmm. right? As people run to or get just feel more comfortable, even though they shouldn't based on intrinsic data. Uh, right. and or feel like they are kind of index hugging in some way and therefore you create this kind of melt up uh, phenomenon that's that's occurred and so it's it's very very dangerous uh, it ultimately leads to a debasing of of monetary of of of, uh, uh, of of developed market currencies um, you know you see this doesn't end well uh, if you look historically over the last right, couple right. thousand years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you're really basically mortgaging the future uh, to kind of, you know, if I may mix metaphors, you know, fill up the holes that are coming, that are increasingly sprouting out of the dike. And yeah, so I, it's, it's a very uh, treacherous time. I mean, one thing I thought was kind of interesting is, you know, we, we obviously traditionally think of central banks as, you know, this is the lender of last resort against you know, good collateral. And what we seem to have seen now is that the Fed has become the market maker of last resort. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm curious how you think, like, how is that different? Is that just an evolution as like risk shifts from banks more to capital markets and non-bank lenders? Or is that, you know, markedly different than what we've seen in the past? I think it is markedly different. I don't think it had to be that way. I think you could have recognized that there were hundreds of billions of dollars of, of asset liability mismatched uh, investment products out there and mm -hmm. simply said that can't that's not allowed and I think you could have created market makers in these products and not um, not basically threaten them with uh, you know a struggle session uh, if they were you know too long or too short uh, in order such that they were uh, this was avoidable effectively and so mm -hmm. now you have a really again a really scary thing where uh, this level of moral hazard is really arguably an unprecedented one, uh, or certainly not in many, many hundreds of years, I'd, I'd say. Uh, and uh, it creates, you know, strange effects. And one of the effects could be that you have these zombie enterprises and zombie assets that are just allowed to um, kind of marinate indefinitely, mm -hmm. uh, going from refi to refi to refi, as one example. Um, right. And so there are these uh, unintended consequences of these kind of uh, rash uh, behaviors uh, that uh, ultimately come home to roost one way or another. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, if you have a, you know, zombie firms that are essentially weighing down on the economy, then you might need more stimulus to get the economy growing, which then can potentially just make the problem worse. Absolutely, and, and certainly uh, it can be worse, right? To so the extent that you have either international or domestic policies that are anti-commercial, whether that's kind of trade-related or, uh, uh, or even kind of over-regulation, basically then capital seeks, seeks financial assets as opposed to places to, be, to deploy to create more mm -hmm. enterprise, to employ more people, and, and you then have greater in income inequality because owners of assets right basically get richer and richer and richer mm -hmm. as their capital shuns the things that create more productive, uh, uh, you know, uh, employee employing asset, uh, asset opportunities and go to more appreciation of ever, uh, ever more devalued currency. Uh, and so you have this very vicious cycle um, that ultimately can be broken, but it takes a real will. You know, Paul Volcker in, in Volcker 1.0 mm -hmm. had will uh, and 
you know, when the politician screamed at him, he did the right thing, right? And so for a brief shining moment there, we thought that might happen with this latest uh, head of the Fed. And, you know, he got kind of the market, you know, attacked him, the president attacked him, everybody attacked him. He right. said, forget it, I'll just do what the other guy did, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and, we'll, and we'll leave the problem to the next person. And maybe like diving a little bit deeper into some of the other things we're seeing. I mean, I know another risk kind of before this crisis happened was the growth of the triple B um, rated debt, the you know, yep. lowest grade of investment grade debt and the concern that, you know, in a crisis, if you get a lot of downgrades, that could just overwhelm the much smaller high yield market. Yeah. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about like what we've actually seen and then what concerns you still have there. Yeah, well, I think uh, what we saw was uh, in this kind of quest for yield, um, the market became unbelievably issuer friendly. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was you had, you know, longer durations, less compensation, worse structures, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, at the same time, you have this strange um, circular logic that happens, which is the less I'm compensated uh, for my loan, by definition, the more chance I have to get paid back. So that's kind of a better rated security, right? right. Even though it's <laughs> right. inappropriately compensated. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, the agencies, similar to banks, right, have this tre tremendous focus on um, the coverage of interest by cash flows, mm -hmm. um, as well as the uh, as well as the levels of defaults, right? Right. And so when you actually think about what causes a provider of fixed income security to lose money, uh, it is neither a lack of coverage nor a, 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 a great amount of defaults. It is in fact a lack of, uh, it, it is too much leverage, right? Mm -hmm. And the severity of those defaults, right? right? And so unfortunately what you saw was this appreciation, everybody, it's like, uh, it's like modern, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, school kids with, uh, you know, kind of in a millennial world where everybody gets an A plus and a ribbon, right? Yeah. <laughs> so all these bad credits got kind of too much of a rating, right? And so, and then the second that started to show through, you've seen this raft of downgrades, mm -hmm. which are just a reversion to at least the beginnings of where sh they should have been in the first place, right? Um, I have referred to agencies as the uh, as as the um, ambulance running toward the mortuary. Right, <laughs> uh, they're always kind of last to know, last right. to react, right. last to act. But for better or worse, tremendous numbers of uh, of investors managing tremendous amounts of collateral, um, relatively blindly follow what the agencies say. Right, and so. Mm -hmm. That's a scary thing. That's also a place of opportunity because if you're on the other side of that, you can, there's our arbitrages to pursue. Um, but suffice it to say, there was this great inflation over the last 10 years and the average, uh, yesterday, yesterday's double B was today's triple B. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, there's tremendous incentive to stay at an investment grade level because of how easy it is to raise debt. Right. Mm -hmm. And so on top of that, there were EBITDA adjustments and other things that right. were, really, really problematic. And those are just, and they take a while to kind of come through and cause problems. Mm -hmm. And, and what you're seeing is in addition to this raft of downgrades, you're seeing a lot of 
inter and intra capital structure battles going on mm-hmm. uh, because the language in a lot of these documents was so loose right. that it could be interpreted re- or reinterpreted by opportunistic folks to say, well, no, it really didn't say you had that asset. It had meant I had that asset. As yeah. an example. Uh, and you're now seeing what will be years of these kind of battles start to erupt. Uh, that will be further exacerbated by the reality of the performance of this collateral in a in an environment where the uh, there has been permanent diminution of value uh, caused mm-hmm. by this uh, by this pandemic and or depending on how you look at it the reaction to it. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're speaking there a little bit also about the kind of covenant light nature that you've seen in some you know both loans and and potentially high some high yield debt as well mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I'm kind of curious because I'm the, you know, on the one hand, I've heard some people say that in this crisis, in a, in a perhaps somewhat perverse way, the lack of covenants or the very weak covenants have enabled some firms to not go under immediately. Because obviously, if you have fewer covenants to breach, you know, that makes it you can potentially, you know, access capital, you know, get another loan or whatever. And, and it seems like, okay, in the short term, I see that. But then, you know, moving forward, you know, it, it just seems to me that that's only going to end very bad. Well, unfortunately, um, when you're a lender, uh, you know, the old saying, if I lend a dollar, I'm your lender. If I lend you 10, I'm your partner. Right. <laughs> uh, another way to say it would be if I lend you a dollar, I'm your lender. But if I lend you a dollar with no covenants, I'm your partner. Uh, <laughs> and, you see, and, and you see these horrible uh, misalignments of interest between mm-hmm. uh, providers of capital, providers of lending capital and owners. And ultimately, what you frequently see is, if you were to deal with an issue with an enterprise and recapitalize it appropriately in a very proactive manner, the cumulative value in the enterprise you may uh, result with may actually be much higher than mm-hmm. if you just let the problem metastasize, right? Right, right. And so people, people intuitively think if it doesn't, quote unquote, go under, that's a good thing. But go under doesn't necessarily mean go away. It mm-hmm. just means reorganize with an appropriate right. capital structure, appropriate governance, appropriate focus on the bottom line and optimizing what remaining value is there uh, in a way that makes sense. It's creative destruction. And so when you preclude that from happening, you're not necessarily helping yourself. And in fact, it's one of those, those things that point to what I had uh, d- discussed before, which is this bias toward a focus on coverage, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, coverage and defaults instead of leverage and losses. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I think it'll it, it, that that issue will will show itself, you know, quite a bit. Yeah, because I mean, I think you know, you do sometimes hear people say like, "Oh, well, you know, these firms may be six times levered, but because rates are so low, you know, they're what you know what they're paying, you know, is their interest itself is not as you know is not the problem, it, you know." So it, if in that right. sense, then okay, it doesn't matter that they have all this leverage. And as you're saying, though, that's right. that's not necessarily the right way to look at it. And I think also you have to think about the continu- continuum of risk reward, right? Mm-hmm. So if an asset was worth $10 and I lent $6 against it, right? And someone put up $4 of equity, maybe I, and I get maybe as a lender, eight or 10 or 12 or 14% and the equity per equity participant gets 14, 18, 22, 25%. And so, and suddenly the asset goes from being worth $10 to $8. Mm-hmm. My coupon may be uh, maintained by the by the borrower, you, you know, for my first six dollars. But suddenly, mm-hmm. I'm really taking an equity or quasi-equity risk, 
And so again, right. what you see from providers of credit is this notion of, thank God I get my coupon. And you're like, well, wait a second. Your coupon's kind of insuff insufficient because you're taking yeah. full on equity risk. And what should be happening is you should be making 20s, right? Because you're now right. deeper, you've effectively become a deeper in the capital structure stack risk taker, mm -hmm. right? And should be compensated better, right? And so if you were completely dispassionate about that, as opposed to having to report your, again, your coverage and your, and, and, and your default stats, and you were just actually trying mm -hmm. to make money, you might demand, be more inclined to demand what you're due. Yeah, so it's like your, your risk adjusted return is really not um, comparable to, you know. Yes. Yeah. So now let's do a deep dive into structured credit. I think a good place to start would be if you could just explain what exactly a leveraged loan is and then also what a CLO is. Right. Well, you know, leverage loan, a leverage loan is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not such a, a definitive thing. Mm -hmm. What it implies is perhaps that it is relatively more leveraged than what a usual bank loan would be. That can or cannot be the case. It depends. It also sometimes implies that, in fact, it's, it's actually going deeper into the capital structure where certainly historically you might have seen a bank loan and then a high yield bond. Mm -hmm. You might just see one leveraged loan that effectively covers that whole ground within a capital right. structure, mm -hmm. right? So all things being equal, it just means kind of lending a lot and maybe too much, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then in terms of structured product and CLOs generally, uh, what you see is someone saying, I'm gonna take a big bunch of these uh, leveraged loans, I'm gonna put them into, I'm gonna insert, insert them into, a, into a, an SPV, a, a, an entity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm gonna raise debt against that entity, right? And the, the debt that has the, the first call on the cash flows coming from those loans is cheapest mm -hmm. and more senior. Mm -hmm. and, the and as you go more junior, you get more and more compensation, right? And so effectively, it's like saying, um, it, it's just like what we saw in RMBS in the, in the, yep. in the OA crisis, right? Where mm -hmm. you're using securitization to allow different people to take different parts of the risk reward of a pool of assets. And in the case of CLOs, it happens to be a pool of loans are those assets um, that people mm -hmm. are choosing their risk, risk from. This technology, if you will, has been utilized as early as the even late 70s to early 80s and happens in a lot of different ways. Right. And um, I know, you know, CLOs are kind of, you know, famously did relatively well in the last crisis. Yeah. And, you know, and then, although obviously the market has grown since then, and you know, this time around, like everything, you know, we kind of saw spreads blow out pretty much across the board in March. And then yeah. now, in, especially depending on what tranche you're talking about, we obviously have seen you know, spreads narrow. But maybe to talk a little bit about, again, what you're seeing with CLOs and maybe where you think, you know, is there still any systemic risk there? Sure, well, what you see is, in CLOs is an example of what we frequently see uh, when we see kind of successive crises, which mm -hmm. is that people evaluate um, investments in, or types of collateral in a given situation using the rearview mirror. And they mm -hmm. say, well, this thing worked out well, even though we were all worried about it. So therefore, it must always work out well. Yes. And they don't necessarily take into account the secular changes 
either mm-hmm. in that collateral or the marketplace that may have actually made that not such an, uh, such an easy uh, calculation to make. Mm-hmm. And in the case of uh, 08 with CLOs, and, and when people say they worked out okay and it was scary, they typically mean the, the, la- the residual claims in CLOs, the equity of the CLOs. Right, yeah. Right? Uh, and what happened was at the time you had collateral that wasn't in the form of leverage loans um, that was uh, all, all things being equal, more compensated and more conservatively structured. And you saw, and you saw uh, transactions that were raised on the uh, right side of the balance sheet of the CLOs that also were a little more thoughtfully done uh, and a lot more appropriately done. And, and there was a level of um, um, quality of those structures um, that was, uh, was more prevalent. And there was relatively more, relatively more alignment between the managers of those CLOs and the owners of the securities in those CLOs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward to today, uh, a huge amount of this product has been sold based on the rearview mirror analysis there without yep. taking into account the tremendous secular changes that have occurred, um, each more kind of frightening than the next in terms of the low quality, the bad structuring, and, and the tremendous misalignment of interest between those uh, taking the risk and those uh, deploying the risk, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so uh, when you are looking at what are effectively 10 times levered pools of loans, um, that themselves are too long in duration, not sufficiently compensated, badly structured. Uh, and you then take into account the structure of these transactions, which themselves are limited in various ways in terms of their ability to defend value um, in mm-hmm. terms of how they participate in restructurings and whether they yep. can provide new money and things of that sort. And you look at the nature of the people who are managing these assets and the degree to which they are in fact taking any risk whatsoever, right? Which mm-hmm. in all, in many instances, it's virtually none. Right. It's it right as as Charlie Munger says, "Show me an incentive, and I'll show you an outcome." Right. Yeah. And so the incentives are horrible uh, mm-hmm. when you think about how this is teed up. You're seeing tremendous and well-deserved downgrades, and you'll see more. We're seeing very bad empirical data on the ground in terms of a number of these businesses, and there's actually a slightly more even nuanced risk in that the nature of those leverage loans are that they are very frequently lending to financial sponsors. Financial sponsors um, rightly Mm -hmm. are because they're effectively residual risk takers. They like things that have, that are supercharged that don't take a lot of capital, right. To create a lot of, a lot of cash flow growth. And in many Mm -hmm. instances, they were buying businesses that were very uh, exposed to this kind of situation, right? And right. unfortunately, what you saw in these businesses that had no very few intrinsically hard assets was that everybody capitalizing that from the lender to the borrower was taking the same risk. It's just the borrower is getting a lot more compensation, right? right? Yep. And, and so that really went hog wild in the last decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, it, it's, it's almost like a casino um, that, you know, dials up its win-loss ratio such that all the, all the gamblers come in and basically steal from the house, right? <laughs> yeah, and I guess maybe that's another jumping off point there. Because I know we've obviously spoken about this a bit, but, you know, 
it seemed like there were all of these kind of pockets of risk really, really growing, you know, over, frankly, decades, but especially since the last crisis as, you know, extremely low rates, you know, QE. And then we get this crisis that is such a unique crisis in the sense that people think, you know, there are no bad guys in the sense of, you know, this, is, this wasn't caused in theory by too much leverage. It was caused by a virus. And thus you have both monetary and fiscal, you know, just kind of throwing money at the problem, which on the one hand, you know, is, is good in terms of making sure that our entire economy is, isn't falling apart. However, it also seems that maybe then the necessary correction hasn't really happened that you maybe would have expected if it had just been a normal crisis. So maybe I should just uh, speak about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, um, I think my, my, my answer to that would be that we tend to um, overestimate the importance of, of, and we all do this, of, of our time and our place, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if 1998, if you had said there'll be a kind of global crisis precipitated by the, by the destruction of the Thai bot, right? <laughs> you could say, well, that's really strange. That would never happen, right? Mm-hmm. But just this once, it was really out of left field, right? So right. everybody, while they're living a crisis, always thinks that, you know, this thing is an out of left field thing, right? And mm-hmm. so, but what's consistent is the kind of over leveraging and misalignment of interest that always happens in repeated, in, in, in repeated cycles of uh, inflated asset and credit bubbles, right? Mm-hmm. And so always that thing that pricks it is the, uh, you know, thing you would have never thought, right? You ne- would have never thought that you would have never thought of the internet 1.0 explosion or 9-11 or Enron, uh, but these things kept happening and happening and happening, right? And they will never stop happening, right? And so I think that this just happens to be another example of that. And by the way, 100 years ago, we had exactly this. And we've had, you know, we've had pandem- pandemics create crises mm-hmm. many instances over, over the centuries. And so I think as some, if I were uh, the head of a monetary authority and I had been artificially suppressing rates in response uh, to effectively uh, any threat to the stock market mm-hmm. uh, and, and a pandemic walked up to me, I, that would be my new best friend, right? Because now I can say it wasn't me, right. my asset <laughs> bubble blowing up uh, that was the problem. It's this hundred year flood, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's really the problem. And I'm going to unleash all the different tools on the tool belt uh, to handle the pandemic. And it wasn't me putting us in a position so that we were as susceptible to an unexpected thing, including a pandemic as possible. It was the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. And so I just don't have a lot of sympathy. Uh, I see, and you saw this in certain folks uh, in March, right? You, people start using 100 year flood, perfect storm, those kind of things, right? But it's just not the case, right? And, and it's not an excuse, right? It's not, you're, you shouldn't be absolved for reading history if you're deploying large amounts of other people's capital. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I mean, I was, it was interesting to me this time around because it actually kind of reminded me of the panic of 1907 because that was really started by the earthquake in San Francisco the year before, which is mm-hmm. essentially a natural disaster. And in theory, if you'd had a natural disaster that was you know, insured, you know, all these buildings insured by all these British insurers, in theory, oh, you know, whatever, gold comes over to the United States, things are okay. But because you had had all of this kind of instability building up in these trust companies and trust banks in the United States, and then everything just blow up, you know, completely mm-hmm. blew up. Yes. And, you know, when we look back at, at it now, we kind of understand that. But, you know, at the time, it could have been just, you know, it would seem like, oh, is this, you know, natural disaster that did it. And it kind of seems to me a little bit that that might be kind of what we're seeing now. 
I, uh, I just finished uh, reading uh, Robert Sobel's um, study of, of the major panic since uh, the uh, U.S. Revolution, right? And you mm -hmm. see, again, every 5, 10, 15 yep. years, same stuff happens over mm -hmm. and over again. He covers, I don't know, 13 to 15 of them. But those are only, you know, a selection of them, right? Right. Uh, and so, uh, again, it just kind of happens over and over again. And the question is, when you were deploying capital, did you think about what if we return to the next crisis? How are we going to feel? As we deployed capital coming into this, we always asked ourselves, quite literally, not even figuratively, literally, what does this feel like in 2008? Are we going mm -hmm. to be upset that we own this and, and angry at ourselves for having bought it, either because of the situation and or the price? Uh, and if the answer was yes, then we didn't do it. Right. And that, so that seems kind of simple, but then that takes that much more work and a tooling of your business that isn't simply a price taking, um, right. effectively marketeering exercise, but a real investing exercise. What, you know, what we just talked about looking forward, because, you know, basically everybody seems to be believing at this stage that we're going to have essentially zero rates for, you know, the next 20 years. You know, I mean, and, yeah. and I'm just, you know, wondering, you know, what you know, what the ramifications and also like what breaks the bubble? Because it seems as though as long as, you know, these central banks are able to do this without generating at least, you know, we're, we're definitely generating asset price inflation, but until we generate goods price inflation, you know, it doesn't seem like anybody cares about it. So like what, what kind of causes this to come apart? Well, I think there are two directions here. You don't, you can't avoid a bubble breaking by just effectively um, throwing yourself into a long-term economic malaise, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can Japonify effectively. And I mm -hmm. think Europe has a really great chance of effectively that being the state of affairs, you know, for kind of the, you know, certainly the next decades. The question in the U.S. is, is there a culture of innovation uh, enough to basically grow into your own currency? Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And, and, you know, does that therefore come with a greater risk of an actual bubble popping, maybe, right? Can you have both, can you have the kind of best of all worlds, which is to kind of wildly debase your currency while kind of using productivity to kind of grow into it? That would be unprecedented, right? I guess mm -hmm. it's possible, certainly more possible in the US than Europe, yeah. uh, but it's, it's, it's not appetizing and not easy. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that the uh, the situation here is going to be one of real kind of grinding, uh, grinding malaise. Um, whether it'll be as bad as Europe, don't know. Um, but this is not going away anytime soon. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that the there has been a relative lack of recognition of the damage caused by again either the pandemic and or the reaction to the pandemic or both. Mm -hmm. um, that is going to take a long time to grind itself through. Uh, and so yet you see securities markets not really reacting to it. Um, it is interesting how psychologically uh, relevant stock market prices are, uh, mm -hmm. certainly, and, yep. and, and how that feeds into other marketplaces. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you looked, if you looked um, at the actual facts of the matter of the empirical data out there, you could, and you, and you closed your eyes, you could see this market down 50% and say that was logical, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yet it's still hanging up there. Um, and we haven't really, we've tried to certainly, you know, six, eight, 10 weeks ago, we were buying some and trying to buy more and 
we saw things just fly upwards with no real volume underneath them. And mm -hmm. you really can barely get anybody to sell you anything right now, right? Much less at a price. Uh, and so the kind of psychological optimism um, expressed through securities relative to the actual facts of the matter on the ground, it diverges so greatly um, mm -hmm. that it is uh, surprising. And I think ultimately what you'll see is, is we, we break the world into three buckets, which is that there are things where there's permanent damage and kind of everybody, mm -hmm. even the most optimistic have to recognize it, right? So that can be like oil and gas credit, right. retail, small business lending, aviation. And mm -hmm. we're spending a lot of time in those areas, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And only in the last few weeks did we start to see people kind of coming out of the shell shock and starting to say, let's let's look at the kind of steaming ruins here of what we're going to do with what we have. Mm -hmm. uh, then the second bucket is uh, things within um, uh, corporate assets, property, structured finance, many of which had participants that themselves had real issues with asset liability matching or other problems. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to see the actual facts of the matter of that collateral start to mm -hmm. kind of play its way through. Um, you know, accelerating levels of bankruptcies and other yep. stuff happening that's just, again, unavoidable, right? Things you can't amend, extend, and pretend through are starting mm -hmm. to bubble through. Mm -hmm. And then you see this vast pool of fixed income securities uh, and related securities in leveraged loans and asset-backed securities and mortgages uh, where the data is not good uh, and or it's, it's dirty data, meaning it's unclear data, right? right. So if you think about residential mortgages and subprime auto and consumer installment loans, basically everybody's been living on a deferment uh, holiday here. Mm -hmm. And so we haven't, none of us have seen what the undisturbed consumer right. even looks like. Uh, right. uh, and so it's all kind of levitating and everybody's kind of waiting for how these consumers are going to act, how these borrowers are going to act. We don't know. Uh, and we're doing a lot of work in those areas. We think there's mm -hmm. a lot of issues, but it's going to take a little while for that to kind of play through. And frankly, we don't, we don't have any great optimism that that'll happen before an election where the greatest amount of pressure to kind of keep things levitating uh, is focused, right? Mm -hmm. Once it happens, and even with, with whatever the outcome, maybe that'll be another uh, point at which there could be a reckoning. But who knows? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that that the ending on who knows in this environment is probably a good place. <laughs> um, yeah. the, the theme of 2020. But um, again, thank you so much for coming on. This was really great. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner. Be sure to check out breakingviews.com and subscribe to our various audio products, including The Views Room on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you go to get your podcast fix. Thanks again for listening.